Hello, everyone, and welcome to Urbanize. Uh, today, I'm speaking with Dr. Kate Maloney, a very well-established engineer and teacher. Um, hello, welcome, Kate. Hi, Wally. Thanks so much for having me. Hey. So, um, yeah, we really appreciate you um, coming out here. We know that you're are you based in Georgia now? Yes, still based in Atlanta. That's great. And a fun fact for everyone listening at home, uh, Dr. Maloney was my math teacher back in high school, one of my math teachers, and she's one of the most amazing math teachers I've ever had. So thank you. <laughs> fun fact for your listening audience, uh, you asked some of the best questions I've ever had. I still remember talking about infinite set theory and how that drove more than one mathematician insane. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah. I'm still asking questions. <laughs> now, I, now I interview people, so it's great. We're yeah, still- Keep asking questions. Yeah, thanks so much. So we just, we just have five quick questions today, you know, and I guess we'll, we'll just kick it off to get started. Um, how does your training and professional experience as an engineer and teacher influence how you see the world? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, so I think as an engineer, we're very much trained to look at everything as a problem to be solved, kind of in a big picture way, and then break it down into solvable chunks, analyze you know, which paths have what risks and what benefits, and then choose a path. And then we're trained to, to reanalyze as we're going along. Mm -hmm. So, and then as a teacher, it's kind of different actually, although I applied an engineering approach to teaching, but when they teach you how to be a teacher, they, they teach you to think in a very linear way instead of that engineering way. It's, it's, it's either a backwards look or a forwards look, but it's, you're already in the weeds of the small details, um, which I actually found very hard. I still applied kind of the big picture and then in. Um, and so training-wise, I think it just makes me look at everything that you, so when you called, even when you said the world, um, it's an interesting thing to think about when you ask someone what, how they see the world, what do they define as the world? And so the world can be our surroundings, it can be the people, it can be the cultures, it can be all the above. And so I feel like both in different ways, both my engineering background and my teaching background very much makes me an observer and a learner and a kind of driven to want to make things better and different, no matter what view of the world I'm looking at, whether it's physical surroundings, um, interconnections, people, places, any of those things. I think our world's really complex and fascinating. I think that's great. Oh, wow. And I guess like just a quick follow-up from that, because I, I don't believe I ever asked you this earlier. How did, so it, it sounded like you were an engineer first and then became a teacher. Could you kind of speak to how one led to the other? Yeah. Um, so I finished my undergraduate engineering at Georgia Tech. And when I was the junior in college, somebody dared me to take the PhD entrance exam, which you don't usually take to your, in your master's program. And I did, and I passed it. 
And so yeah, I was getting a lot of professor interest and so forth. So I just said, hey, this sounds good. I'm not ready to go work. <laughs> so I just stayed and got a PhD. And technically, I don't even have a master's because they had this loophole that if you pass the written exam and you pass the oral nothing written down that said you had to have doctors. Yeah. So silly for time. And I just went straight through. They closed the loophole because <laughs> they lost money, obviously, if, and they would lose money if people did that. Um, and then when I, during my PhD program, I filled in for some professors. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a funny story. Um, teaching, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought when I got my doctorate, I immediately got a National Science Foundation postdoctoral fellowship just to stay and do more research. And I was advising students. And so as part of that, I also taught a couple classes. And as I was transitioning out of the postdoc, Georgia Tech had a hiring freeze technically. And the director of electrical engineering asked if I would stay on as faculty and teach um, because he could transfer what my position was. Mm -hmm. He couldn't hire someone outside. And so I just sort of fell into that and then stayed for another six years, I guess, two years of postdoc and then six years on the faculty um, and teaching at a university level. And then kept having kids, got up to three kids. It was a lot having three kids. We had an opportunity to go to Boston um, for my husband who had a startup offer. And so I resigned and um, went up to Boston. And I did do some engineering work in small ways, but I really mostly, we had our fourth child stay at home with kids, um, which I really value having been able to do. Um, I did technical writing. I'm not much of a sitter arounder, if that makes sense. And so yeah. I either had a part-time job or um, I started a 501c3 foundation for a school, so mm -hmm. a public charity. Uh, and then actually, so then kind of like the kids are getting older and my oldest was getting ready to go go to college and I'm looking at the dollar signs, you know, for college. And around that same time, your principal, Mr. Shaprani, as a favor, asked if I would fill in for Julie Walls, who was going to be out on six weeks adopting a child in Russia. So oh, I was like, wow. sure, favor, I'll do that. She taught calculus. And I loved it. Like those six weeks, I still have incredible memories. I'm still in touch with some of those kids. I just loved it so much that I thought, hey, this is pretty cool. And I was starting up my engineering business on the side. I'd been out of you know, not really working, just kind of part-time working for about 10 years, but it was time to go back. So I started my business, sole proprietorship, and I started teaching. And I got certified while I was teaching and really did love it, like, to the end of the earth. I mean, I just love teaching. And at the same time, the business did really well at first and then had a slow portion, which is not unusual. Um, so they're both kind of going along. And then teaching I guess I'd been doing for about five years and my mom's health was failing it's very hard to be a teacher hmm. and have flexibility so I went back to engineering full-time at that point for three more years and during those three years my partner and I really took the company to a very stable size um, multiple multi-year contracts and I just found I missed teaching so much that she and I started negotiating it took about six months to negotiate my sale of my half so I could go back to teaching. And then the coronavirus happened. So that's the story of my working life in a nutshell, which is more than you asked. You'll probably have to edit a good bit of it out. Um, but anyway, so that's how it evolved and how, so I think really my whole career, engineering and teaching have been side by side in a way. And I really love them both. That's wonderful. 
Thank you. That was a journey. <laughs> I'm invested. <laughs> yeah, it's been a journey. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Are you ready for the next question? I am. Are you? Yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> this is 205. 205. So just three more, three more after this one. So how does being a mother impact how you teach, design, and evaluate uh, the surrounding built environment? And this can be anywhere where you navigate. Yeah, that's an interesting question too. Um, when you become a parent, and I don't know if it's different for fathers or not. Like I think, I'm not a big gender person, but I do think there are differences. Mm -hmm. And there are differences between those roles as mother and father. So my experience as a mother, I want so much for my children to have safe and open opportunities to learn and experience and grow for all of their lives. And so I think I'm sort of constantly looking at um, the environment that they're in and immediate environment, immediate community, and then kind of the bigger community because it all impacts both mm -hmm. that instant and so I think being a mother has made much more aware of how big things trickle down and, and affect others and through my children like they have taught me so much of how to look um, at myself and my own biases in different and fresh ways and how to acknowledge that the way I was raised had imperfections and the way I raised them had imperfections and the way they'll raise children have imperfections but as long as we're always striving to mm -hmm. understand who we are and how we fit in and what we can do. It's kind of the best we can do. Yeah, I think that's great. I know a weird answer, but you'll always get those from me. No, that was perfect. So, wow, that was perfect. Yeah, thank you. And um, all right, so question number three. So how do you think that we may improve our built environment and social environments to ensure success for the most people possible? Well, those are such big and important questions. It's really two questions, but they're intertwined. Mm -hmm. um, I think, well, first of all, we're stewards of the earth and we have not been good stewards of the earth. And when I think about um, like the generations that proceed, have preceded me and like I, you know, it's, it's mixed like most white Americans. So I have some ancestors that came in 1640 mm -hmm. um, in ships after the Mayflower. And then I have my dad's um, father was actually a coal miner who had just come over from Ireland. Um, and then there's some Native American mixed in and then these other trails. And when you think about how many generations back that is, America's really a young country but in, if you go forward that many hundred years, like another 400 years, I, this is not great language, but my descendants are going to be screwed <laughs> if we don't get our act together. You know, we got to really, we have to think about it and we've got to care more than just for ourselves. Like the, I feel like the selfishness that has grown in a set of people my age, particularly and older, um, is, is just astounding. And the, sort of just the not 
caring about the fact that the infrastructure that helps everybody actually helps you too. Yeah. Like how you not care is just astounding to me. And so somehow we have, and it's not going to happen by people yelling at each other. And it's not going to happen by people being in these silos of information where they just keep getting pummeled by their same opinion over and over. It's, it's got to happen in, in some kind of soft and caring way. I'm speaking mostly to my, the people that are my generation um, and above, because we're the ones failing at the moment. And it's hard, it's hard to watch. So I, I think the, the basic answer to your question is we've really got to change course. And I wish I knew how to do it. Uh, we just had this conversation at dinner last night. My 17 year old is so passionate um, that he's literally unable to not speak in passionate and kind of harsh ways to his grandparents. And I actually agree with him and back him up on what he's saying, but there are ways to say things. I mean, if you want somebody to change or do something, being persuasive is just much better than being aggressive. Mm -hmm. Now that being said, and this is what he said to me last night and he's right talking to me, which is all often just kind of like, oh, uh-huh, uh-huh, because I don't want to argue with somebody who's 80, mm -hmm. um, that that acts like I'm agreeing, and I don't. And so he and I both agreed we have things to work on. Um, I need to really stand up and be vocal about all my beliefs, even for 80-year-olds. Um, and I am with people my age and younger, and he needs to learn how to take the edge off a little bit so that people will listen. So in a roundabout circular way, I think what I'm getting to is we've got to start listening to each other. And uh, the people that are in power need to do that the most. Like they need to listen. And if they won't, we need to vote and get other people in. Yeah. Not be a leader if you can't listen. And if you can't see other people's perspectives and you're not there for the greater good, that's just not good. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's perfect. Go on for a long time. I feel pretty embarrassed by white, white people my age. But a lot of us, a lot of good people are starting to listen and try, self-examine. And a lot aren't, especially those with wealth. Yeah, I think. Yeah. At a certain point, it seems like, like if ignorance is bliss, right? Like at a certain point, self-examination may mean self-destruction if you're a logical being. And I think people understand that. Or self-destruction. I think. Yeah. 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 I'm going to give you a quick, we talked about, because I think it's really what you said made me think of this in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Um as we were walking today, you know, it's one o'clock in the afternoon. It was horribly hot. We were down by the Chattahoochee and Sam and I were talking about how incredibly inhuman it would be to have been a slave and have been picking cotton or whatever in that kind of humidity and how anybody could beyond the whole owning another human, but just think that it's reasonable to have people working like that. Mm -hmm. And you know, but of course the rich people were against changing their way of life because they had a pretty comfortable rich life, right? Well, it's kind of what's happening right now um, when you look at the pandemic, the CARES Act and the PPP. So the, yeah. bank, the banks helped to write those. 
Yeah. So of course they didn't do anything that's going to damage the banks. And so while they're getting all this money from doing the PPPs and they could borrow 0% interest, they're not doing anything like saying, we're going to put a hiatus on collecting mortgages for six months. Yeah. And people that are, are land and renters, landlords, are the ones that are still consistently making money. Well, almost everybody else not. Banks are consistently making money. The big Amazon's consistently making money. Yeah. And they could and should be able to, just like other developed countries did, have a hiatus on collecting mortgage. That would be a good example. Yeah. And, and what Sam said was, why would they want to? They have a perfectly comfortable life. Why do they want to do anything that would draw attention to it and potentially start to destruct their perfectly comfortable life. Yeah. And that was really your point about selfishness. Like we got to start caring about more than just ourselves. Yeah. I think you're right. I think, um, I honestly think that we're still fighting for what it means to be an American, you know, because like, yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. What yeah. it means to be an American big question right now. And there are definitely are very strongly different beliefs of what yeah. that means. I think it would go a long way if we were to establish as a baseline that helping out other people in America is patriotic, you know? And because I feel like these other countries, these other developed countries, they're developed, but they are also like, they're, I think they're more humane than us because they see their population as humans. And I think they do that because they have a shared identity, like Germany, like the Netherlands. They're like, we are the Dutch people. We are the German people. We are the French people. And their legacy goes back like thousands of years. And like with us, we're still like about maybe 400 years old, depending on who you're talking to. And I live in Portland. This city is like maybe 200 years old. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just a hundred years that we added the last couple of states, right? Well, actually, a few of them. I think were 1948, if I believe mm -hmm. Alaska. You're right. Yeah, no, you're right. I don't think we have an established national identity that's based on what it should be. Yeah. It seems like profit is our identity. And until we shake that, it's going to be like it seems like history has literally been rewritten such that captains of industry are the heroes and everyone else is just side characters in the story yeah and shareholders you know are what corporations it's all they care about and that's a really bad side of capitalism like yeah. capitalism can work and still care yeah kind of you got to accept that the socialist arms in a capitalist economy need to be funded yeah. And then it work. But yeah, you're right. I, I don't think the the giant CEOs are are I think people are heroes. Yeah. Out there <laughs> making it and trying to make a difference. I don't think everybody agrees with us <laughs> yet. Yet. There's a I, lot of fear, I would I would say. Yeah. If you ever come to Portland, I'll I'll show you some people who uh, this the this city is a microcosm. The city is a bubble of people who are like, oh, climate change is real. Oh, let's power people. Let's. It's very refreshing, but it, and also like out of step with most much of America.
probably not most people, but geographically most. Yeah, I've heard that. I've only been to Oregon briefly. I'll put that on my list. Montana's yeah. coming up. Yeah, let me know. Let me know if you come by after the vaccine's out. And we'll, we'll hang out. <laughs> <laughs> if we ever get to leave anywhere. Well, eventually, I heard human trials are starting, so. I did see that, the Oxford trials. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. All right, we got two more questions, and wow. We were flying through it. So let's say, like, what, what observations have you made from kind of teaching or working across urban, suburban, rural, collegiate, and high school environments? Like, you, you've, you've been intimately in, like, a lot of places that kind of compose America. Like, you've seen a little bit of rural with your parents out in Montana, you've taught in like suburban high schools in Wheeler, and in a very urban, like Georgia Tech. So what, what contrasts and what shared values have you seen across those different places of America? Contrasts and shared values. I think this goes a little bit to your comment a few minutes ago, which is that we don't have a great definition of what it means to be an American. Um, and so I think that those, there are some sharp contrasts. Uh, yeah. When you think about that, um, we lived also in Boston, we lived just outside the city, um, right between Lexington and Concord. So it was outside of Boston, but barely. So it is suburbs, but, but we spent a lot of time in the city. And I would even contrast um, like the, the Northeastern urban areas to Atlanta. Mm. Very oh, different. Wow. Oh, the, like the infrastructure, physical infrastructure in New York or DC um, is so solid and all over Europe. It's one of the things I love about Europe, which is another big contrast. I mean, I, I spent almost my, all my whole growing up years in European cities. Mm -hmm. So it was very common, even as a high schooler, to get on the train and, and go somewhere. You know, you just did it. It was easy. And we don't have that here. I think it's very... It's very stark to me when I look at suburbs and the fact that we don't have shared transportation, shared infrastructure, and honestly, we have much more desperate working poor now outside of access to those kinds of transportation services that usually you have in an urban area. And when you go rural, like where my parents are, or my daughter just finished school, and so she's kind of in the outskirts of Macon, which is pretty rural, mm -hmm. you know, they, they just, they don't even have good internet, which is crucial to life now. Mm. And that's, you know, I don't know how many years ago, but at some point in America, we decided that we were going to invest and make it so that every single citizen had access to U.S. mail. That's where the Postal Service came from. Yeah. And the Postal Service is about to die, which is just a, a huge red flag that we've decided we don't care about every single person being able to have access to mail. You know, we decided some number of years ago that every single person in this country would have access to electricity. Yeah. But we all invested and made that happen. Interstate highways are another example of that. Yeah. But somehow we don't do that now. So I don't think it's been a conscious decision, at least it's never been in part of the vote, the voters vocabulary or the platforms that we see. So I don't know if this is actually a conscious 
strategy at the level of our leaders that are in power or not, but it certainly feels like it. Not spoken about, but mm. the post office definitely is. Yeah, the post office definitely is. You know, not maintaining um, the sewer infrastructures in cities. That's just crazy. And yet we're not. That should be part of every budget. Wow. We just got one last, we just got one last question. That was really, it was, it was great to see him. Yeah. I'm wondering, um, wow, this one's a big one. You ready? I am. What observations have you made on the representation of women, people of color, and age diverse populations across the field of engineering in your professional tenure? So have you seen impacts or paradigm shifts that are driving the present or future of your field? Oh, absolutely. Uh, when I was a student at Georgia Tech, I was the only female um, of my year. There was one other that we actually intersected occasionally. She was offset a little bit. And then I was the only female faculty while I was there. In my group, there were two other women in the whole school. And it was kind of miserable, to be honest. <laughs> like they started our group meetings um, in the locker room after their runs at lunch. And so I didn't come into the meetings until halfway through because obviously I didn't go to the men's locker room. Yeah. And they did nothing of it. Um, clearly, there's been a pretty, pretty big push, like an intentionality on the parts of universities and some, some companies, some large corporations to try to build that, but there's been a lot of pushback too. Janet actually can speak to this a lot if you get to talk to her. Um, and I will say there was a point when we were both in grad school, this is a big observational experience for me. Um, I dress like a slob, like umbro shorts, t-shirts, all the way through grad school. Janet dressed really nicely. She's a little older than I was. And she kept coming in and talking about experiences that she was having at Lenox Mall where people were following her around. And, and mm. I didn't believe her. So we went shopping together. She looked great. I looked like a slob. They treated me completely differently than they treated her. And so it was my first really eye-opening experience um, into that level of inbred racism mm -hmm. and just these subconscious expectations that salespeople and other people have. Um, and that really, a lot of men still have that is what I have found in engineering. Um, even ones that try to be kind of liberal. I, I just you do business where a woman partner was a woman too. The two of us owned the business. And um, one of our main leaders, technical leader, um, mm -hmm. really clearly had problems with intelligent women. What? <laughs> 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 it's just, it, it's astounding. Um, and I don't, it's, it's what gives, feels, it, what's makes, ugh, it's what makes me feel a little bit like I can never really understand racism from the perspective of someone who's not white. I can try as hard as I want to, but I think this experience of sexism and intelligent people who don't want to be sexist, but are, I, I think is the And I don't know how they accept that. We've got to have more experiences younger with putting 
people of color, black and brown people and women into positions in elementary school and middle school and high school and college mm -hmm. and beyond so that it really is an everyday experience. Mm -hmm. Everybody can do everything. Yeah. I wrote a grant proposal for the Department of Ed to create like a giant database and then a tool where teachers could, literally elementary school teachers could um, look at the, how their class was dispersed, like how many of different races and sexes they had. And then they could actually create a database of um, people of those colors and genders. And this includes, you know, she, he, they, like everything. Yeah. Um, in career so that, you know, some eight-year-old Hispanic boy or a, an eight-year-old white girl or, you know, eight-year-old African-American or mixed or whatever could see people that looked like them that did all kinds of different careers yeah. and would speak to them. Didn't get funded because they said my company didn't have enough experience in that realm. We would have kicked ass because we're really good at, we were really good at building software and interfaces. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that's, my observation is we got a long way to go and, and some of the things that we are doing are good, but they're making minimal differences only. And I know that sounds really negative, but that's, that's just been my experience. Yeah, maybe I'll probably connect with you later because now I'm an economic prosperity manager or director, so maybe in contract. <laughs> that sounds like I build dashboards now for the, I built a dashboard for like our city sewer bureau to, for like where their outreach was going because they did, they, in all the years that they have been in operation, they've never said, where are we going with our outreach? They've never mapped it. And, you know, you, you, you can't see, you can't measure, just, you can't, you can't address what you haven't measured, you know? You, uh, correct. Yeah. And you can't get somewhere if you don't have a strategy. Yeah. <laughs> it's to get there. Wow. Yeah. It's a lot of movement with no direction. Because, like, I, sometimes I feel like people, like, it feels to me, like, and I guess maybe a little, like, crass, you know? But like to me, I've gotten the most pushback from unskilled politicians who kind of stopped learning. Like they left college and they're like, "Oh, I'm I'm good enough now," and like they just stopped learning. They'll have like a political science degree or maybe an environmental science degree, but then like they won't learn like PowerPoint or Excel. And so when I speak with charts, like they don't understand. Like they don't understand and they don't want to understand because they just want to be in the driver's seat. But then literally everyone underneath them who's been requi paradoxically required to be more qualified than them to hold the position underneath them, they're like, this makes sense. Like, we need this. And then like, somehow our decision makers, like our system seems to be set up to where like math literate people or like scientifically literate people are not in positions of power. Like it's, we haven't normalized that yet. Oh, that definitely. <laughs> well, our average citizen needs to be more science, math literate. And that's what we're seeing right now with COVID-19. And people really don't understand the math and the science and how it works. I mean, science is not truth and lie. Science is an evolution Yeah. based on analyzing the data. Yeah, I guess one thing that you did make me think of is I, I, I'm a very strong proponent of um, Kids in high school need to do much more real work. Like it should be yeah. project-based and we just, we, we could do a better job and we should. Yeah, I think we will. 
And I'm glad, like, I'm hoping that maybe through like these, like platforms like podcasts and offering them for free, you know, just, the hope is like that one high schooler or a few will like just go on a binge and like listen and be like, oh, I can be like Kate Maloney or I can be like, you know. Like Wally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do think that the, we've got to get the ubiquity of information in the right hands mm -hmm. in a positive way. So yes, I think you're, I think that's a good idea. Well, I think that's perfect. That wraps up, that, that wraps up our interview. Thank you so much, Kate, for. Oh, thank you too. It was so nice to talk to you and see how well you do. Yeah. It's been 10 great. years from now, you're made some kind of a remarkable difference. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Expectations are high. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing what you're doing. I know you're all your, all of your like offspring, they're going to be doing amazing things. The Maloney clan. <laughs> I hope so. I feel like they all, uh, I think Wheeler actually was one of the best things that we did because we're really districted Walton. Um, and you just, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's so crucial to be part of a diverse community. It just is. It just, it just is. Yeah. The way I break it down to people, like after like traveling to other countries and stuff, I'm like, hey, y'all, like most of the world don't have like European heritage. You know what I mean? And most of, even like most Europeans don't, don't speak English. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Sweden, they're not actually all blonde and blue eyed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it's great, you know, and even the blonde and blue eyed ones, like if you were to talk to someone from Sweden, their expectations of healthcare and a random American with blonde hair and blue eyes and their expectation of healthcare probably be very different, you know? And yes. So, yeah. That's great. Thank you so much. Um, won't Thank take any more of your day. It's great. Yeah, I'm sorry I took up this much time, but it was fun to talk to you. It so. was great. Yeah.